Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. A year from now, you'll wish you started a year ago. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you? And I know what you're drinking, but what are you drinking? Do, do you, dude, tell me what I'm drinking. I didn't a know beer. you saw the label. A beer. Oh, uh, yes. Well, I am drinking a beer. <laughs> it's, uh, it's I suppose an- I don't know the exact one. So it, this one's very fancy. It's, it's special limited release ale. It's an imperial stout tart cherry. I, I haven't tasted oh. it yet, but uh, it smells good. I was almost expecting you to say, like, this is a very fancy one, and then just be like, oh, it's a Bud Light. <laughs> mm, this is the fancy. It's not just Bud. It's, uh, it's Bud in, in that black bottle. Isn't that the fancy? Uh, High Life? Budweiser I, Crown or something like that. Yeah, I, I pride myself in not knowing anything. Black label. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just doing the water today, straight from the tap, very fancy. <laughs> very nice. Yep. Today, guys, really excited for this episode because we have the CEO of Wealthfront on the show, Adam Nash, and we're going to talk all about robo-advisors and kind of his story. So how's it going, Adam? Yeah, it's uh, great to be here. Uh, <laughs> seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. We, we hope so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I've got a bunch of questions uh, about Wealthfront because I've always like been doing all these comparisons between robo-advisors and then other methods of just diversified investing. But I'm curious about um, how you got your start because we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how you got into Wealthfront via doing some talks at LinkedIn when you worked there on personal finance. So can you kind of take us through like your personal history and how you ended up being the CEO? Yeah, well, I don't want to bore you with a, a long story. Um, you know, I came out of school uh, as a software engineer. My first job was at Apple, actually working on what became Mac OS X. Um, and I've had the good fortune to work at a whole host of great technology companies, you know, Apple, eBay, LinkedIn. I've been a part of two startups that have gone public now. Um, but personal finance and investing has always been a passion of mine, even going back to college. My senior project was to try and build a better Quicken back in the 90s when that was a <laughs> thing to do. Um, and so as I rose up as a manager and a director and as an executive of these tech companies, um, I was always very frustrated with the fact that people were not getting a good personal finance education. Right? Mm-hmm. You could be brilliant, mm-hmm. have an IQ of 160, have gone to the best schools in the country, and still you didn't even have the 101 on basic personal finance. Yeah. And in the technology industry, people are thrown into these jobs, which it's a great outcome, right? Like they're, they're high paying jobs. They get they get equity in the companies they work for, but they, they weren't given any information about how to think about those financial problems. So informally at eBay and then LinkedIn, um, I started giving talks at first to my teams and then more broadly in the organization about personal finance and investing just as a, a way to give back to the community and help get the conversation going, getting people talking about money. Um, and so I think the talk you're referring to um, became somewhat famous. I gave a talk at LinkedIn to the entire technology organization about a month before the IPO. Um, that talk became, was well-received enough that at this point, I've now been asked by about probably 50 or 60 companies to give the same talk. I did it at Twitter a few weeks before their IPO. Most of the late-stage companies in the Valley have now heard it. Um, it's just one of the ways I like to give back to the technology community. So is the, I think the official name is Personal Finance for Engineers. Yes. And why engineers? I, I'm an engineer. Um, I, Thomas may consider himself one. I think a not lot of- Not an engineer. Not an engineer. <laughs> Most people listening are probably not. It, is it like too, too thick for them? No, no, not at all. Um, actually, the reason it originated, I mean, the truth is it's a good personal finance talk for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually given it in wide forums where 
the audience weren't only engineers. Um, the reason it originally was constructed as a talk for engineers is that I found that I, I found it particularly off-putting. I mean, sometimes the reason people don't want to engage with money is because they don't love math and they don't mm. love no numbers. Not because it's difficult, but for some reason they developed an aversion to it when they were growing up or an anxiety about it. And it always struck me as strange that engineers who usually are incredibly highly trained in math, right? Mm. They're not scared of statistics. They're not scared of algebra. They're not scared of calculus. They're not scared of anything related to math. And yet still they weren't engaging on personal finance and investing topics. Mm. And so the original form of the talk had a lot of inside jokes and kind of analogies to things that software engineers face in their day-to-day -day jobs and realizing that there's actually a lot of commonality between that and how you deal with money. So I think you, you nailed it with the aversion to math piece. Um, but that said, uh, I mean, personal finance in general, and I mean, as we start talking about Wealthfront, is, is there a lot of math involved, you feel? Not really. Um, I, I think that, you know, I'm a big believer that, that good personal finance hygiene starts with real basics, right? So if you go through the talk, you'll notice that you don't get to sophisticated investing or even the idea of what to do with kind of index funds or stocks and bonds until the very end. Um, mostly, like a lot of things in life, I, I think personal finance is, is about managing your emotions, right? It's finding a balance in your life. It's, it's not unlike health or education. There's some diligence involved. There's some basic understanding. Um, but a lot of the things that take people sideways when it comes to money are really emotional, um, right? We always tend to want more than we have the capacity to kind of buy, uh, yeah. And there's reasons why society pushes that on people. And so just teaching people how to think about money in, in frames they understand, everyone learns differently. Um, but yeah, there's not a lot of math involved. The math comes in a little bit later, um, really as a defense, I think, against some of the sales pitches and techniques that are used by the traditional industry mm. to kind of part people from their money. Um, but the first part of the talk is all about behavior. It's all about emotion um, and actually giving people permission to admit that they're not rational with money. And that's okay, because basically no human is. Mm. Um, there's this ideal out there that somehow you'll just, the only people who are good with money are, are almost like robots. Like they just, <laughs> you know, they add up every one and zero, they add up, you know, every decimal point. Um, right. They figured out everything for the next 50 years of their life. Um, and, and nothing could be further than the truth. You know, a lot of good hygiene around personal finance is about building good habits. Um, and a good emotional attitude towards money. And so um, that might sound surprising for a talk that was originally written for engineers, um, but it turns out telling a bunch of engineers at some of the best companies uh, in the country, you know, kind of the Google, Facebook, LinkedIn crowd, mm. telling a bunch of engineers that they're not rational um, <laughs> turns out to be harder than you might think. <laughs> and and yeah, they, I guess they debate it with you, right? <laughs> oh, of course. Actually, it's one of my favorite parts. There's, um, I go through a list of some of the more common known ways that, that people are irrational with money, you know, coming out of over 15 years of research in behavioral finance. And, and one of them, of course, is uh, the fact that overconfidence mm, is highly yeah. correlated with IQ. And so inevitably, in every one of my talks, one of the engineers comes up to me afterward and says, Adam, loved your talk, um, but I have to tell you, I do not believe that I'm irrational with money. <laughs> and I always say, like, that's okay. 
overconfidence is highly correlated with IQ. I'm sure you're very smart. <laughs> it just sounds so like insulting. Well played, out sir. Of context. Uh, that, actually, that was what I wanted to bring up with engineers being so close to all the numbers and stuff. I would guess that overconfidence is the number one uh, kind of killer of a finances of an engineer. Well, you know, it's not just engineers. I mean, if you go back to uh, even books from the 90s, you know, The Millionaire Next Door and others, um, it used to be that people would, would, would bag on, uh, on doctors or lawyers or other professionals as being experts mm. in their field, but somehow not great with money. Um, I just think engineers are one of the most successful professions of this century, and so they get picked on a little bit. Um, but the truth is, is that everyone has some overconfidence because there's always an aspect of your life where hopefully you are really confident for good reason. Um, the big yeah. problem with overconfidence is not that people aren't experts in something. I mean, Silicon Valley, you have engineers who are brilliant at everything from networking to data storage to application development, UI. The problem with overconfidence comes when people take well-earned confidence from one area of their life and carry it over to another where, frankly, they don't have that education and background. They don't have a reason to be... Um, confident. Um, you see this, by the way, with health conditions all the time, right? You take someone, a brilliant engineer, yeah. a brilliant um, lawyer, you can, you know, someone who's brilliant in their field, um, they have a few symptoms, they go online, and in 20 minutes, they're, you know, arguing with their doctor who spent 15 <laughs> years studying the subject. Uh, that's not related to money, but it's the same idea of overconfidence. Um, and when it comes to money, people are, for some reason, embarrassed to admit that they're not an expert in it, that they haven't spent a decade learning about the subject. Um, and that lack of a humility is what I talk about, you know, what it means to actually have a good bearing on what you know and what you don't know. Um, because overconfidence can really lead you to make some big money mistakes over time if you're not careful. So it's kind of like you need to learn how to split your confidence into multiple little pieces and assign confidence levels to every discipline in your life based on your experience in it rather than how most of us do it where we just kind of have like one confidence rating and it's fed by the one thing we're really good at and then we apply it to everything else. Well, hey, look, we're, we're all human. We like to feel good. I mean, mm -hmm. when you get great at something, it's not wrong that you feel good and confident about your skills and capabilities in that area, but it's a little addictive. Once you mm -hmm. get addicted to that feeling uh, of being really great in something, when you go into other areas, it's very easy to either fake it um, whether it's on purpose or, or subconsciously, um, mm -hmm. or avoid it. And it turns out with money, both of those answers are a mistake, right? You, you can't avoid money. You have to learn how to deal with money in your life um, in this economy. And being overconfident is another form of problem of kind of, you know, faking confidence or believing you know more than you do can lead you to make some really big mistakes with your money, especially when there's a multi-trillion dollar industry out there pitching you in ways to play on that false mm -hmm. confidence to kind of get that money out of you. Yeah. So I was reading on your blog that you had this really smart grandma who taught you <laughs> personal finance at a young age. And I was wondering, um, so because you were able to learn from her, did you kind of have all this set up at an early age? Or did you find that you were making some rational mistakes with your money as you progressed through life? Oh, no, I, um, uh, I definitely learned a bit the hard way. Um, so my grandmother started teaching me about personal finance uh, when I was in college. Um, I started working uh, the summer out of high school, um, had a variety of jobs. Um, minimum wage back then was four twenty-five, so I can't say that it was a, uh, a well-paying experience, but it was a good experience. Um, 
you know, and uh, I worked at the Stanford bookstore, kind of selling computers, fixing computers, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I had my first well-paying job internship as a software engineer, I worked for Hewlett Packard um, here in Palo Alto, and I actually made uh, several thousand dollars over that summer. Um, and in the fall, I basically bought a computer, was spending a bit just being in college, and by November, most of the money was gone. And I was just yeah. shocked, right? Like going from making minimum wage to what I thought was an obscene amount of money, right? Making a couple thousand a month and then having all that money gone uh, so quickly made me want to really study like what was going on with, mm. with, with people and money and investing. And, and I was fortunate. My grandmother had recently retired. She'd actually been a teacher of math, right? Junior high school, always um, helpful with money, everyone in the family. And she was the one who first gave me the, the, the books to read about, you know, what's a certificate of deposit, right? What's a bond? What is a stock? What's a mutual fund? Um, and so I, I owe her a lot because I think she encouraged that interest uh, while I was in school. Um, she's still around. She's still helping family members with money today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's, she just turned 90. Um, but that's, that's really how I, I got a start for it. It was from personal experience, um, realizing that despite the fact that I had gone to great schools and was going to one of the best universities in the country, um, I just, there had been no coursework, no class on the basics of thinking about personal finance and investing. Yeah, and I wish there was. Mm. I think at, at, my sco- at my school, there was a online one credit class you could take, but there was almost no way to find out about it. The only way I knew was because there was a, one random flyer in a psychology building about this class. You know, it's not sexy. That's the thing. Yeah. No one wants to talk about money, you know, do the math. Um, well, one of the things when I was reading uh, your, your talk and you had like slides up, is um, you had the slide and it said, good investing is boring. And I found that uh, really interesting because I, I believe that it's true. And I think like we have good investing in, is boring on one end. Mm. And then we have like, um, you know, so everyone thinks that they must put so much effort in to earn the result. And then we have this like fear of math on the other end. Um, and I, I think you, you found this spot at Wealthfront, which kind of sits in the middle. Can you tell us a little bit about like your thoughts on good investing is boring and why Wealthfront or how Wealthfront attacks this? Yeah, well, I think there's two things that lead people astray when it comes to, to good investing. Um, the first is what we alluded to before is that we really are emotional about money, right? And it turns out if you look at the research, those emotions lead us astray, right? Like Dalbar is one of the famous organizations that puts out research on how retail investors are doing across the country. And, and it's been decades, and it's always abysmal. Um, you know, uh, individual investors are underperforming the market by something like 4.5%. And there's a whole host of reasons, but the two biggest reasons are that they pay too much in fees, um, and they make emotional market timing-related errors in terms of when they enter and exit the market. Mm-hmm. Um, the second counterintuitive part about good investing is that it's one of the few areas where the average is actually much better than average, right? People are used to areas where they want to be the best. They want to excel. I mean, mm-hmm. this is particularly for people who are smart and ambitious. It's hard to accept that actually if all you did was match the market return, that net of fee, net of tax, you'd be doing better than almost all of your friends and colleagues out there. Mm-hmm. Not, not just a few people, but almost all of them. Yeah. And so actually Wealthfront brings these two things together, right? The whole idea between automating this is to take the emotion out of it, right? You know, set it up once, forget about it. The computer doesn't have a bad day. 
Um, it's not preoccupied with what the news is, what news of the day is happening. It it doesn't get caught up in a, a media cycle. Um, you know, it just does what the math tells it to do, um, and you avoid those behavioral errors. And then, of course, on fees, it turns out that software is incredibly inexpensive, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of a best of both worlds. So the whole idea with Wealthfront, um, I've written about this in the past, but I really feel like this is the third wave of innovation that's helping individual investors with their money. And I think it's a, it's a real game changer for helping more people reach their financial goals. Yeah. So when I looked in the Wealthfront um, probably over a year ago, uh, I was comparing it to some other options, and I noticed that the minimum for opening an account was $5,000, I think. Uh, but now it seems like it's moved down to five hundred. So what was the rationale for making it 5000 in the first place, and what enabled you guys to move it down to be more accessible? Yeah, well, there's a couple issues there. Um, I'm really proud of the team for the project that brought our minimum down to $500. It's been a longstanding goal. I mean, our fundamental belief at Wealthfront, we're a very mission-driven organization, is that everyone deserves sophisticated financial advice. Mm. Um, the reason originally there was some tension there is because um, it turned out that below $5,000, we were concerned about whether you could really provide a sophisticated investment solution at a low cost. Um, I probably don't need to tell you guys this, but there's this gimmick out there in the industry, and it affects both large banks and brokerages, as well as startups out there, which is they're happy to take money from people, almost too happy um, because they charge some form of monthly fee, right? Yeah. There's some gimmick where if you don't make a direct deposit or a scheduled deposit, you're paying three bucks a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month. Mm. And those numbers may sound small, but if you're paying three bucks a month on a $500 account, that's literally a 7.2% drag on your money. Like you're yeah, not going to get that money back. Like a $36 um, yearly fee, right? Yeah. And so, um, so we were really frustrated by this. Um, so Wealthfront, by the way, our pricing is pretty different than anyone else. Um, we're free under $10,000. Um, and that's because we... Feel free it, it, to use not, names when you say different than anyone like, else. Like, like totally free? Uh, yeah, like, I, I mean, we, we don't provide the ETFs themselves. So of course, they have an expense ratio, but that's incredibly low. Okay. Uh, but fundamentally, um, part of our pricing differentiation from the get-go has been the fact that, um, look, we're betting on young investors. Um, mm-hmm. We're happy with the bet because we think if we take care of people, they'll be with us for a really long time. And, and mm-hmm. some of those folks will find success, and they'll remember us that we took care of them um, when, frankly, the existing industry had no interest in taking care of them. My wife and I um, had this experience when we were coming out of school. Right, You remember the services that took care of you when they didn't have to, mm-hmm. and you're more biased towards them uh, when you are successful, because you remember the type of business they are, the type of people they are. So for, um, for the young investor, um, and I think most of the people in the audience are familiar with Betterment, how do you guys mm-hmm. compare and contrast on, on the low end? Because I know that um, if you're not doing order deposit with Betterment, there is like a $3 a month fee. Yeah, I think, look, um, I just did a, a session online on this. It was one. It's one of the most common questions. I'm always, I mean, if you talk to our clients, the reason people pick Wealthfront, is that if you're just starting out, um, we are no question the, the best value at the lowest cost, right? We're not, we're not charging $3 a month or $5 a month. There's no gimmick about automated deposit. We support scheduled deposits, and we encourage everyone to have a regular savings pattern, but we don't require it, and, uh, and, and we're free, right? And so um, you get all the benefits of Wealthfront there um, when you're starting out, uh, not just to try the service, 
but to get started saving. Um, what's really differentiated Wealthfront is that as you grow with Wealthfront, we have features at the high end as well that no one else has, right? So our direct indexing platform, which kicks in once you have $100,000, which is quite a ways away for some people. But once you get there, we offer value um, that, that no one else has, has done. We've been the innovator in this category. So do you want to explain, what, what, oh, yeah. explain that feature like in detail? Yeah. Uh, sure, I can explain. I mean, tax loss harvesting. Well, no, no, the, uh, the previous oh. one you were saying. Oh, uh, direct indexing? Yeah, yeah. Direct indexing is very cool technology. Basically, this is something that the wealthy have had access to for decades, but really hasn't been available direct to consumers until, until now. So it turns out the index fund is almost perfect, right? It's low cost, it's efficient, um, it's really a fantastic invention for investors. But the one flaw with the index fund is that it's a fund. Um, and it turns out going back to 1940, I kid you not, the Investment Company Act, the one thing that mutual funds can't do is distribute losses, right? And it turns out every year, some stocks mm -hmm. go up, some stocks go down. You know, Apple has a good year, Google has a bad year, or vice versa. But funds can't take advantage of those losses and give them to you. They just have to carry them forward. Now, the wealthy figured out a long time ago. And, and just to be clear, actually, you, you mean yeah. like if you owned each of the stocks individually, you could harvest the loss? Is, is that what you're talking about? That's exactly mm. right. That's so it. for the, people the like me who don't, the index. for the people who like me who don't understand harvesting the losses, yeah, um, can you like explain that a little bit in detail first? Yeah, it's 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 pretty simple. the The concept between tax loss harvesting in general um, is just a reflection of the fact that, as far as the IRS is concerned, and the way we've set up our system, you only owe taxes when you when you make an investment transaction, right? When you okay. sell something, until you sell something, you don't owe anything. Right? So mm -hmm. if you hold the stock for 10 years, you're fine for 10 years until the day you sell it. I'm going to exclude right. dividends for now because that's a separate thing. Okay. Um, so it turns out that a good way to manage your taxes right, is if you sell something at a loss, um, you can use that write-off against other gains in your portfolio. Right? You, mm -hmm. you have to true it up at the end of the year. Right? You file your taxes. You match up the losses and the gains. So the idea with, with tax loss harvesting is that it turns out that it's a good idea to take losers quickly, take losses quickly, because short-term capital gains is a very high tax rate, and it's good to let your long-term gains ride as long as possible into the future. That's why holding for long-term is valuable. Um, tax loss harvesting just automates that, right? So it watches your portfolio, looks for like, hey, emerging markets is down today, and it might sell one fund and then buy another. Right, your portfolio stays diversified, mm -hmm. but you take advantage of that loss this year. Um, and so the reason that turns out to be really advantageous uh, is because it turns out investments are always throwing off gains, right? And you can write off some of this against your income. And so it turns out tax savings today is a real boost to kind of your long-term investment. You can let those gains compound for years, or if you're young, for decades, um, and really take advantage of that wealth creation. It's kind of like a form of tax deferral. If you were to quantify an average amount of savings you'd get by executing this versus just kind of buying and holding and never harvesting losses, what kind of upside do you guys see with tax loss harvesting? Yeah, it's pretty significant. Um, we've probably published the most detailed research of anyone on tax loss harvesting and direct indexing. Um, because we've been doing it the longest, right? We rolled it out in 2012. So our clients mm -hmm. have benefited from it. 
So we've actually published what the results are just in the first few years, right? So in 2013, we added 0.54% in tax savings wow. to our average client. In 2014, it was over 162 basis points, 1.6%. Wow. So, and last, of course, it was very choppy in the market, and we added more within 3.2% to our wow. clients. Wow. So in one year, you added 3.2% to the gains they were already getting because of tax like streamlining. Yeah. It, it's on, on, Just to be a quick caveat, just to make sure, it's on average, right? Mm. That was across all. Some were more, some were less. Mm. Um, but the truth was, last year was the exact type of year that you want a strategy like tax loss harvesting. I mean, look, you, you know I'm a big believer from my presentation that if you just do nothing but buy and hold a diversified portfolio of index funds for the long term, you're going to do better than most other people out there, most other investors. Yeah. But when you buy and hold investments, you know, there are periods in the stock market where things go down for a while. Um, the cool thing about tax loss harvesting is that it's good news on a bad day. Right, So in a year where performance is bad, look, the markets always come back. It just takes a matter of time. But a lot of us get emotional about those months and years where the markets are down. Like markets were down in January. But Wealthfront clients get this good news, which is like, hey, I know you're not happy the markets are down. They'll come back eventually. Don't worry about it. But in the meantime, you're going to save money on your taxes this year. Mm. It's kind of a good emotional counterbalance. Um, and it's good financial sense. And like I said, if you were wealthy, if we had a, a family office, we had $100 million, you'd have a team of people doing this for you. And in fact, the wealthy yeah. have had teams of people doing this for them for the last couple decades. GE has a um, giant division just to reduce their taxes. Yeah. I mean, I, why, look, if, honestly, if you, were, if you had hundreds of millions of dollars, you'd be foolish not to hire a team of people to mm. do this for you. Yeah. Um, the exciting thing about Wealthfront and, and part of our philosophy has always been to look at what the ultra-wealthy are doing with their money, automate it into software to make it cheap enough that everyone could have access to it. You know, Our point of view is that these type of strategies shouldn't be the exclusive province of, of the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started with, direct, uh, with uh, tax loss harvesting. Um, last year, we launched the direct indexing platform. Can you, um, can and we you now go, have... Can you go I'm deep sorry, on that? Yeah, the direct indexing platform is, a, is, is really amazing, um, uh, and I like to geek out about it both on a technology level as well as an investment level. But basically the idea is if you have enough money, instead of owning the index fund, owning the individual stocks, market cap weighted, isn't a hard software problem. Um, and so unlike an index fund, which frankly doesn't know you from anyone else, right? It doesn't know if it's an IRA. It doesn't know if it's in a taxable account. We can actually buy all the individual stocks in that index um, using ETFs okay. to complete it. And then when Apple has a good day, Google has a bad day, we can trade back and forth. Remember, Wealthfront doesn't charge any commissions, right? There's mm-hmm. no fees tied to that. Um, and so we can balance out tracking the index with generating tax savings. Now, if you're just starting out with a few thousand dollars, um, taxes are probably not your number one concern when it yeah. comes to investment performance. It's saving. But as you get more successful and further in your career and you start having hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually, it turns out taxes can be the biggest drag on your portfolio, right? We live in a country where if you sell a stock in 364 days, the tax rate might be 14% higher 
than if you held it for 366 days. Right? That's just the system we've set up. Hmm. You and I, doing it ourselves, we make those mistakes all the time. Right? Like we, we don't really think about the taxes until you know, April when we have to file our taxes. Um, the great thing about the computer is um, it, it, it does the math every, every second of every day. Right? You make a withdrawal, it does the math on which lots you should sell. Here's um, the thing is, and, so I get that it does it automatically, but yeah. I, I will do stupid things because I, I don't know that that one day difference is a dramatic tax difference for me. So if I show up to my Wealthfront account a day early, do you guys be, say like, whoa, Andrew, just like wait. Like you, it's stupid to do it today. <laughs> yeah, well, so what we do is we try and, and bring taxes into everything. So with the automated service, we're always looking at opportunities to save you on taxes. So tax loss harvesting, direct indexing, we're always looking at that. Um, but actually, if you come in and you want to withdraw money, um, we're happy to do it, and we're, we're proud of the service there. Um, what we try to do for you is just give you the information you need. So we will tell you, actually, there is a significant tax hit if you mm -hmm. withdraw this now. Mm. Uh, and we try and explain why. Um, part of the Wealthfront experience, I think, is that a lot of investors, a lot of people, they like this idea of automating it. That doesn't mean that they don't want to learn how it works. Mm. So we try and yeah. build education into the experience, right? So for a lot of our clients, they, they see something happen like, hey, we saved you $200 on taxes today. They want to know why. And, and so this is why we have so much content on our blog, in our experience, in our app, um, because we think we can teach people based on the system while they're watching an automated service, do it all by the book, right? You're learning by watching an expert effectively in action. I want to jump back to the index fund example because um, okay. the, the question took a little bit to, to like marinate in my head. Um, but okay. say um, for the normal funds, you know, just if I have like $10,000 with you guys, you put me into VTI, Vanguard, Vanguard's total stock market, like most popular generic fund. You're saying if I had $100,000, you would buy the components inside of VTI and manage that. That's right. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, that's a good example. It's for the U.S. market. So if you put in $100,000, um, it's a lot of money. Uh, it's actually not enough money to buy everything in VTI. VTI mm -hmm. covers something like 3,000 stocks. Oh, wow. So what the direct indexing platform would do is it would probably buy close to the 100 largest stocks in the index to take okay. advantage of that opportunity and then buy other ETFs to represent the rest of the U.S. market. And the cool thing gotcha. about the platform is the more money you put in it, the more individual stocks it can buy. So as our investor, you know, the largest accounts at Wealthfront now um, are actually well over 10 million, right? Mm -hmm. And so as you get to half a million dollars, a million dollars, our largest investors will actually buy over a thousand securities, right? So compared to most automated services that just handle a, a handful of ETFs, one of the things that we're proud of at Wealthfront is that we can incorporate over a thousand different securities into portfolios when it makes sense. Now, if you're just starting out, like I said, that's not the right problem to solve, mm -hmm. right? If you're starting out with a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, probably the single best thing that you could be doing is make sure that you are spending less than you make, saving regularly, and have that diversified portfolio in there. And we do offer tax loss harvesting to everyone. So, um, so could you explain how tax loss harvesting works for the non-direct uh, method where if I don't own all the funds, how does the tax loss harvesting work for me since you said the fund itself can't actually pass the losses back to the individual investor? 
Sure. Uh, that's, that's actually the capability that we rolled out back in 2012. And I think it's become a standard for the industry now, right? So a wide range of folks offer some form of it. Mm. Um, so if you go to Wealthfront with just $1,000, right, to start out, you're not just going to buy VTI, right? We're going to put you in a portfolio personalized for you across six or seven different asset classes, six or seven different types of investments. Okay. Um, now, for each of those investments, we've evaluated all of the ETFs out there in that category, right? I mean, there are thousands of ETFs out there. Our team has gone through them, and we've picked not just the best ETF in that category, in our opinion, um, but also what we would consider the second, third, fourth ETFs in that category. So let's say that it was a bad day in emerging markets, right? And the best ETF that we hold in emerging markets is Vanguard's, VWO. Mm -hmm. But emerging markets went down today by 2%. I actually don't know if that happened, but let's pretend it went down 2%. What we might do is sell the Vanguard fund, book the loss, so now you have that for taxes at the end of 2016. But then we would buy the number two emerging markets ETF, which is almost as good as the Vanguard fund. I mean, it's highly correlated, but it's a different fund, a different index. So your portfolio stays diversified, right? So when emerging markets comes back tomorrow, you're there, right? You didn't lose out on the opportunity, but you got the tax loss today and you both. Okay. So you're harvesting the losses on the ETFs instead of the uh, individual stocks. Basically. That's the difference. Tax loss okay. harvesting, the way it's treated with most automated services, refers to the ETFs. Direct indexing is really our technology that says you can go beyond the ETF, right? You yeah. can own individual securities themselves. Okay, so you're just getting far more points to, to harvest losses off of with the direct Yeah, I think uh, the way to think about it is, you know, if we put you in six or seven ETFs, every day that's six or seven opportunities for you to harvest losses, right? right? And we watch it every day because that's what the computer does. Um, with direct indexing, with our largest clients, you might have a thousand opportunities a day, right? And so it just turns gotcha. out more opportunities is more opportunities. So I want to I pull back out for a second because I think there was other like specifically detailed things that you guys do that's awesome. But uh, you were talking about diversification and I know that's like at least one thing most beginning investors know of that it's important and um, it's really cool you do these automated in the weeds things that give us um, an advantage but like high level what's your guys strategy I mean are you just investing in the S&P 500 I kind of just like do that myself like do you follow like modern portfolio theory and you have a lot of nuances that I mean yeah I just kind of want to find out what's your story yeah um I mean, like I said, I, I think Wealthfront's DNA, you have to remember, you know, our co-founder, Andy Ratcliffe, is not only one of the co-founders of Benchmark Capital, which might be one of the most successful venture capital firms in the world, but he's also on the board of trustees for the Penn Endowment, right? The, we've had the benefit um, of working with some of the best in the industry, both on the finance side and the technology side. So, you know, Bert Malkiel, um, who literally wrote the book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, the famous mm-hmm. Princeton economist, he's our chief investment officer. Right, So we, we pride ourselves on the sophistication of our investment strategies. That being said, the magic of the automated service is that you don't have to be an expert in all those things. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that, that's something that actually a team of PhDs in finance and economics can work out. And so, yes, deep down, like that team is using the latest and greatest 
not just modern portfolio theory and, and Black Litterman, but all the details that you would do if you were an institutional shop looking at these instruments. We do that so our clients don't have to. The thing that you should focus on as a client or as a potential client or someone who's just thinking about investing um, are the basics, right? You want to keep fees low, you want to stay diversified, and you want to be smart about taxes. Keeping fees low, index funds get you a lot of the way there, right? And one right. of the reasons that we try and stay a low-cost service and we're free under $10,000 is that we know that starting out, that actually can be the hardest problem. I mean, I, I don't need to tell you, most banks and brokerages I run, almost perversely give their worst price to the people who can least afford it. And they give their biggest discounts to the wealthy. Mm. Um, and we set up to be the opposite of that, right? We're free under 10000 and then one flat rate above that. Diversification, the problem that I think a lot of investors have right now is short-term memory. Um, it's called, in behavioral finance, recency bias, right? It feels like the smart thing to do for the last couple of years has been to just own the S&P 500, mm. yeah. right? But over the long term, it's almost conclusively been demonstrated that that's not going to lead to the best return for you over time, right? The world's mm -hmm. a big place. Um, there's a lot of different countries, a lot of different companies. Um, you don't only want to diversify across countries. You want to diversify against types of investments, stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities. Um, yeah. And so Wealthfront um, automates that for you. I mean, that's actually the big advantage. I mean, look. If all you did was invest in an S&P 500 index fund, once again, you'd be doing better than most retail investors out there. Right. Um, but that's actually not the ideal. And home bias is one of the reasons that investors all around the world, not just in the U.S., tend to underperform over time because they fall in love with their own stocks. I mean, um, you know, Canadians overinvest in Canadian companies and, and the British mm -hmm. overinvest in British companies. And and Australians over-invest in Australian companies. Um, what we try to do at Wealthfront is take a very objective view and look across uh, 11 different asset classes. And based right. on your personal financial situation, we try and put the right asset classes in your portfolio. And it makes sense because just because the, the companies you're familiar with are within a certain set of borders doesn't mean they're going to do better or worse than something outside that border. And it doesn't mean you're going to understand how they operate any better than you would understand a foreign company either. And yet it does seem more sensible to invest in domestic stocks just when, I, you, know, when you think about it on a light level. Well, it's certainly better known, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that local bias is always there. Um, and the worst thing about it, of course, is because of that recency bias, that's what leads individual investors to basically buy high and sell low. It's one of the reasons, right? So, mm. um, you know, U.S. stocks have been better than foreign stocks for the last couple of years. If you were thinking about buying low and selling high, you would say, oh, well, this might be a good time to get international stocks cheaply. Um, but, of course, emotionally, we don't feel that way. Everyone who bought international stocks the last few years feels like, why did I do that? I could have just bought U.S. stocks. The right. truth is these things always zig and zag over time. And this is why automating things like rebalancing works, because it forces you to stay diversified, even when your emotions want to lean into yesterday's winner. Mm -hmm. um, we actually put out this chart for free um, that actually looks at all the 11 asset classes that we track over the last 16 years. And what you see is that the winner one year is almost never the winner the next year. Hmm. And sometimes right. the more extreme winners 
turn into the most extreme losers in other years. Emerging markets, right? They just mm-hmm. go up and down. Right? Some years they are gold, and some years they are the dogs. So right? they talk um, about drift, and uh, there's a lot of people on the internet who've kind of said like drift actually reduces the performance of your portfolio because you're constantly pulling out from the winners and going into everyone else to diversify. And you're saying from your data you've seen generally, that's actually not the case. Well, actually, you're actually raising a really good point. Um, And this is where the math comes in. It turns off there's trade-offs, right? The reason you don't do rebalancing every day is that rebalancing has its own cost to it. Not the least of which, by the way, is taxes, Mm. right? Like selling winners and buying losers sounds good in principle, but our tax system taxes you on the sale. Yeah. And you have to make it up on the other side. So the great mm-hmm. thing about rebalancing strategies, Vanguard put out some fantastic research about 10 years ago where they documented how they do rebalancing in their target date funds, which instead of being done quarterly or annually, like most 401k plans you've seen, actually is, is done on a trigger, right? It's done statistically. They only rebalance if the drift gets big enough, if, the, if, if your portfolio gets so far out of balance that the cost is worth it. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's what we've implemented at, at Wealthfront. The only difference is instead of implementing it across two asset classes the way that Vanguard did, we've implemented it across 11. So say I'm invested with you guys and I'm drifting, right? I'm going more towards some of the winners. I'm having less of the losers. But I also have an automated monthly contribution. Do you attempt to um, tweak my drift with my monthly contribution, or do you kind of keep it as is and you wait for an event to pull back? No, no, you're, you're exactly right. We actually use every possible opportunity to tax efficiently get you back to your ideal allocation. So strict rebalancing, like I talked about at Vanguard, mm-hmm. is probably the most expensive way to keep your portfolio balanced um, and diversified. Um, if you have a scheduled deposit, that's fantastic, right? There is no reason that that deposit has to go in evenly to all your different investments. Mm, if emerging right. markets is down, we can use that deposit to shore up that position. By the way, it's not just deposits. Uh, we also have different asset classes that generate dividends and interest on a regular basis. And that flow of cash can be used to rebalance your portfolio. Um, there's no rule that says if your real estate investments pay a dividend, you have to reinvest that money in real estate. Right. It might turn out to balance your portfolio that that real estate dividend should get reinvested into emerging market stocks or into municipal bonds. So, and so Wealthfront handles that math for you. On that vein of thought, would you say that if you had automated monthly deposits, it actually reduces your overall risk because there is rebalancing built in? Oh, there, there's no question. Um, we've actually found that um, automating deposits, keeping your portfolio balanced, um, I don't know, it, it's a form of risk uh, for sure, um, but you certainly would make sure that you stay diversified over time, which theoretically should give you a better risk-adjusted return over mm-hmm. time. So earlier you had said um, everyone deser- uh, everyone deserves sophisticated event- uh Man, this beer is really good. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone deserves sophisticated financial advice. Um, And I agree, uh, especially the people starting out. But uh, when you hear financial advice, um, I feel like it also comes like burdened with like work, right? It's like, because you're going to tell me what to do and then I have to do it and I have to do it correctly. 
And I mean, I love following directions, but I'm not a great baker. Um, <laughs> I thought so, you said you were a great baker. <laughs> in theory, I think I'd be a great baker because I follow <laughs> instructions, but I made pasta the other day, two batches. First one wasn't good. And I, I guess my question <laughs> is, um, you guys are providing sophisticated financial advice, and I know that you're executing on it, but how much work falls onto me, or do I like literally do nothing? We try and make it as simple as possible to turn one smart decision, right? This decision to get started with your long-term investing, and we'll take care of the rest. I mean, literally, you could download our app, answer a few questions, hook up your bank account, set up a scheduled deposit. Do these questions require math? Well, we do ask (laughs) your age um, and and probably an assessment (laughs) of how much you make. I mean, you know, the truth is, um, you know, we're a registered investment advisor. There's been this huge fight in Washington the last year Mm. about whether or not when you go talk to a broker that they should have your best interests at heart, like that they should really know you and answer, you know, do what's best for you. You'd, and, you'd think and that would be a requirement. Like that was ob- an obvious yes. Honestly, I think that most people can't even believe that isn't the system already today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we take that responsibility pretty seriously. Um, there are probably things we could do in our experience to make it even quicker to move that money from your bank account to Wealthfront. Mm. But, but we actually pride ourselves on our ethics that we don't do that, right? Like, we think that people should get an emergency fund set up first. We actually think that people should get their basic financial house in order first, paying off expensive debt. Um, and we do ask questions because the truth is, just because you're 30 years old doesn't mean – if you're 30 years old and you make $50,000 a year, you probably should have a different portfolio than someone who's 30 years old and has $150,000 coming in every year. Do you, right? yeah. do you tell us that or do we need to know this? No, no, we do that for you. So what we, if you go to Wealthfront, it's a little different than the experiences that are just like, download the app, link your bank account, we're there. Mm-hmm. We actually do ask you questions. They're not math questions. They're questions about you um, because we want to give the right investment strategy to you. So it's not hard. It might be six to ten questions. Mm-hmm. We then give you a, tell you what we're going to do. And if you click the button, we'll automate everything. And if you don't want to look at it for 10 years... You do not have to look at it for 10 years. Here's but I thing. like to think that... Mm. No, tell me. Well, the, the thing that I like to, to say is, like, I think we make it easy enough for people to get started, and then they can set it and forget it. But what we've actually found is that once people have the system working, at some point, it might be a few weeks from then, it might be a few months, they start engaging because they want to know what the mm. system is doing. And that's mm-hmm. getting back to our original topic. I think that's the most powerful form of education. When you see the system working on your money, this yeah. system that was created by Bert Malkiel and all these experts, and you see what it's doing, you're bound to ask questions. Why is it doing that? Why did it rebalance today? And I why think that's did- the magic, is people yeah. understanding why things are happening, because I, I truly believe you shouldn't put your money in anything you don't understand, be it, be it a fund and whatever investment, and um, that's why we want people to learn what you guys do. Now, uh, when I answer my question, you know, when I answer the questions you guys give me, um, you'll find out that I'm 31. But personally, I think I, I invest like a 23-year-old. I prefer much more risk. It, is that possible? Or am I kind of like 30, so like you guys know better, and like I just got to do it? I, I think that given how long your investment time horizon is, whether you're 23 or 31, 
um, or anything in between. Um, I, I think the, there'll be much more important issues uh, like how much you're saving regularly mm-hmm. um, and you know where you are in terms of liquid net worth. It turns out your age alone. I know target date funds push this idea. They focus that solely just based on, on your that, age. Yeah. That would be everything you need to know. Mm. But the truth yeah. is it has much more to do with your financial situation than your age. Um, we do ask your age because it tells us a lot about your investment time horizon. But the truth is once your investment time horizon is beyond 20 years, um, that becomes less important. And what mm. becomes more important is your actual financial situation. We try to focus on the questions that you know um, and we trust our experts. Like We're not asking you whether you whether you have an opinion about what's the best ETF for emerging markets Mm. or the right way to do the math to balance out that portfolio. We do try and give you an input about how you feel about risk. So one of the unique things about Wealthfront is some of the questions we ask you are not about numbers at all. They're about how do you feel about different financial situations? Because it turns out risk tolerance is also emotional, right? Mm. It's also subjective. And we try and combine those subjective factors with objective criteria to come up with a risk score that's right for you. Once you pick that score, the portfolio falls out of it. So right? the math. Is I want to talk cool. on this risk score because uh, Betterment also has a risk score, and it's you know zero to a hundred, and it's like a sliding scale of stocks to bonds. Yeah. Um, and one is your risk score the same? And uh, I guess the the second question is. We get a lot of questions in relation to the risk score because I think it's extrapolated enough that people don't quite understand what that means. And you guys handle things differently in that area than Betterment. Yeah, I think it's pretty different. Um, I mean, you have to, you know, I'm. Uh, I, I'll let uh, John and others uh, talk more. Sorry, I lost the onset. Um, I better speak to, to their service, but. You know, most traditional services, they just want to talk to you about a stock bond split, mm-hmm. as if there's only two asset classes in the world. And, and to your point, are you 80% in stocks or 20% in bonds, or is it 90-10 or, you know, 50-50, et cetera? Um, you know, from our point of view, that's not what risk is about, right? Risk is about, um, we don't think that the average investor, or even, frankly, the sophisticated investor, really has done the math on what percent they should be in stocks and bonds, mm. let alone other asset classes that you know, uh, Betterment doesn't provide, like real estate or, or commodities. Um, that has very sophisticated math behind it um, in terms of how you balance out the risk reward of different asset classes. To us, a risk score has more to do with your risk tolerance. How much are you willing to trade off the ups and downs of the market day to day for kind of the long-term return that you're going to get? Um, and so when we do risk tolerance, the reason we ask those personal questions is we're actually trying to get the heart of your risk tolerance. The mapping of a risk tolerance to a portfolio is something that, I mean, that's why we have Bert Malkiel and those experts there to kind of map that to the different asset classes. Believe me, the numbers never end up being round numbers. I mean, one of the most mm-hmm. suspicious things, I mean, especially me coming from an engineering background, I look at is, really, it's 70-30. <laughs> turned out to be divisible <laughs> by 10, uh, you know. Magic. It, it turns out I also have to have ten, 10 fingers and, and 10 toes. Um, I mean, I know people love powers of 10, but that's not mm. the math, right? So right. I, I think when you look at the Wealthfront portfolio, what you see is we try and get a good beat on your risk tolerance. And then we actually try to use the numbers, right? The objective numbers, not emotion, 
of deciding whether you should be 6% in real estate or 8%, you know, 4% in muni bonds or 12% in muni bonds. And you can tweak your risk tolerance so you can play with it. But most of our clients actually go with our recommendations. Um, and we think that's important because it turns out a lot of people come with opinions about investments that actually aren't grounded in facts, right? Yeah. They have opinions about different asset classes or different funds. We, we think that's better left to a team of experts. We, we hire PhDs yeah. and CFAs to go through all the available data to pick those funds at an incredible level. We just want to make sure that we're mapping that research to what you personally need. Right. So I have a few questions. Um, number one, sure. so you said that you basically look at what the ultra wealthy are doing with their money and you try to automate that to make it lower cost. So uh, I guess the the question that naturally evolves out of that is like, do the ultra wealthy see that and jump onto it now that it's lower cost than what they've been doing in the past? Or are they for some reason sticking with their old methods? Yeah, I think um, that's been one of the surprising trends. I mean, look, Wealthfront has only been in service a little over four years, so it's still mm -hmm. very early days. Um, but if you had asked me back in 2012, when I was a client of the service and not an employee, I would have said, look, an automated service makes perfect sense because if you don't have millions of dollars, the traditional industry um, really doesn't want your business or they'll charge you an arm mm -hmm. and a leg for it. So the idea of doing it software made perfect sense. Um, one of the things that we've learned here at Wealthfront is that actually this isn't just about how much money you have. I mean, as I said, we now have quite a few clients who not only have seven figures in their accounts, um, but accounts over $10 million, um, which I wouldn't have expected three or four years ago. And the reason is, um, like you said, is that more and more people, even if they have significant wealth, are realizing that they're paying a really high cost for not a lot of value. Right? We, yeah. we actually believe at Wealthfront in the long term um, that the automated service will provide higher value at lower cost for pretty much everyone. Um, and that's what we're trying to build here. I mean, if you look at our team, the reason you see such phenomenal folks, um, you know, whether it's on the board, um, you, know, we, uh, you know, folks like Bert Malkiel, uh, Mike Schrepfer from Facebook, you look at our executives from LinkedIn, Facebook, um, we really think that if we take the technology expertise and all the advances we've made in building great engaging interfaces from the last 20 years of software, and we bring that to financial services, um, we can do things in a differentiated way, in a better way than the industry has been doing. Um, and we think there's a whole new generation of investors who are looking for a change. I mean, I don't need to tell you, the existing banks and brokerages are not doing well with, with, with investors under 35 um, mm. after the financial crisis. I mean, there's a lot of skepticism out there about doing things the way our parents did. Mm. Yeah. So I'm um, curious about how you do things personally. I know you became a client of Wealthfront before you started working for them. Um, but the thing about an automated service is it's not, it's not doing a whole lot of speculation. It's not doing a whole lot of big investments in one specific company. So what percentage of your investing strategy is still built into the platform versus you know, making your own decisions and trying to find things to do individually? Yeah, I try to keep, uh, I mean, the advice that we give at Wealthfront, if you read our blog or, or kind of the advice we put out to our clients, is that, look, rationally, the reality is pretty much all of your money should be in a system like this, right? We are our own worst enemies. Um, but it's also human nature to always seek out, you know, areas of advantage um, and interest. Yeah. And so for most reasonable people, they'll say it's okay to take 10 to 15% of your money 
And if you think that you have an edge in real estate and you want to invest that 10 to 15% that way, go ahead. If you think you're close to the startup community and you want to be an angel investor, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, And so personally, I follow that same philosophy. I try and keep the bulk of my assets in a low-cost, diversified portfolio of index funds. Um, My wife and I use Wealthfront for all of our retirement accounts, um, the kind of bulk of our assets. Um, As as someone who's been in the technology industry for 20 years uh, or beyond, um, I've been fortunate enough to also become an angel investor in a number of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not where I put the that that's in that ten to fifteen percent bucket. Um, okay. I, I'm somewhat known as an angel investor these days, um, but that's not the focus from an investment standpoint. To be honest, I think it's a way to build better technology companies is if you're constantly working with and talking to other entrepreneurs building great companies, it right. helps you build a better company. So you've got all your retirement assets in Wealthfront, um, and then you're doing angel investing as well. Do you still have taxable investments outside of Wealthfront that are kind of built upon the index fund strategy? And there's a reason for having it outside if you do? Uh, yeah, so I still have some. I mean, uh, you know, I've been investing long enough that actually some of those index funds, and traditional mutual funds, not ETFs, mm-hmm. uh, and they've been around for a, a while. So the embedded taxable gain is there. And it probably okay. wouldn't make sense to translate them over immediately. Um, it's okay. not the majority of my assets, but it's some. But um, uh, I have a significant amount of taxable assets at Wealthfront. Um, right. And I like to think that I'm saving and, and adding to it all the time. So that was kind of going to lead into my next question. If somebody you know, wants to switch over to you guys or anything else, but they have a bunch of money sitting in a Vanguard fund or a Philadelphia fund or something, um, I learned the hard way last year that I sold all my assets in one fund and moved over to better funds and didn't realize that even within Vanguard, it's a taxable event. So is it your advice to just basically leave what you have in those funds as long as they're like not ridiculously expensive and just start doing new money into Wealthfront or is there a way to move over your existing investments without having a huge taxable event? Yeah. Well, um, this is actually an issue near and dear to my heart because actually, um, we've actually had this question come up so much in the last couple of years we actually rolled out a whole new feature and service based on this problem uh, just a month ago, right, in, in January 13th. So we rolled out the Wealthfront Portfolio Review um, mm. because a lot of people are struggling with this problem, right? Whether you just got started investing early or you've been investing for a long time, you have these existing investments. And there's always that question where I know those investments aren't ideal, but is it worth the taxes and the other issues to kind of sell them and move them over to something like Wealthfront? And so actually, Portfolio Review lets you link your brokerage account. We support the 10 largest brokerages in the country. Mm-hmm. It will do the analysis for free for you about that payoff. Um, more importantly, we've actually implemented a system where we don't have to sell all your investments right away. So Wealthfront will actually incorporate some of your investments, if they can be incorporated, to mm-hmm. save you taxes. And it also will sell down investments. Instead of doing it all in one year, mm-hmm. you can spread it out over multiple years so that you slowly kind of convert your portfolio into the ideal portfolio. So how do you guys um, do this? Do you like get an asset transfer from the prior firm? That's, that's exactly right. So it oh, turns wow. out because um, not only is Wealthfront a registered investment advisor, um, but also has a broker-dealer, um, we can transfer assets directly from any brokerage. Right? We don't need this. Most other startups, most other firms, you kind of have to sell everything, go to cash, and then invest it which from a tax perspective can really be expensive. Um, yeah. We actually determined that a lot of investors can lose up to 2% of their portfolio value in taxes 
just doing that shift. Um, mm-hmm. We built an automated service so that you can transfer the securities over to Wealthfront. We automate the process of transforming the portfolio into our portfolio so you can minimize taxes along the way. So, for example, if you have ETFs or stocks that we already incorporate into our portfolio, we'll incorporate them. There's no sale necessary. Um, if you have a bunch of, if you have some losses and some gains, we can use the losses to cancel out gains to mm-hmm. kind of get you the ideal portfolio. And then the best part is because we have that tax loss harvesting engine, as we generate tax losses for you on any given day, we can use those losses to sell off a suboptimal fund that you may have had historically with no net tax impact and get you into the ideal portfolio. Mm. And this would be an incredibly difficult thing for you to do individually. I mean, like I said, if you had a large family office, you'd have a team of people who kind of looked at it every week to kind of do this transformation. Yeah. We just automated it in software to make it easier for people to get from a good portfolio to what we think is a great portfolio um, without incurring an incredible amount of tax cost. But if you go through our portfolio review um, at Wealthfront today, um, sometimes it will tell you actually... Your gain is so large here, it's not worth it to transfer it over. Hmm. Um, okay. We're not afraid to do that because we always like to think we're giving people upfront, honest, transparent advice. Hmm. But if we can transform your portfolio over at Wealthfront, um, the tool tells you what the trade-offs will be in terms of cost and taxes. Um, and it's been immensely popular. We've already had um, a huge response to it. We're really surprised, um, not just at how many people who had never used Wealthfront before have used the service, but how many people who already use Wealthfront have these other accounts out there that they have questions about? I was going to say, yeah. I'm incredibly excited about this, actually. Yeah. And um, because I have a lot of things that may not be as optimal as I want them to be, but it'd be stupid to pay the 20% in gains. And a lot of them are mostly gains. Um, the, the question is, if I do the asset transfer with you guys, how devastating is it for me when I do taxes? Like, do I like to do like 50 pages of crap? I mean, is it, do you guys handle it all for me? Um, well, you can't handle everything uh, when it comes to taxes. Like, in the end, we, we're not you know, accountants, we don't follow the return. Yeah. Um, we actually just announced, you know, we try to automate everything, and that includes taxes. If you use TurboTax, mm-hmm. um, Wealthfront directly integrates into it. So okay. it's kind of a one click, you log in with your username, password. And mm-hmm. all the information automatically goes into TurboTax. Um, we also, uh, for folks who have an accountant or like to do their own taxes, we'll give you the raw data as well, as well as a summary table to make it really easy to fill in yourself. Um, okay. But most of our clients prefer using an automated solution like TurboTax. Yeah. It used to I be mean, I think that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the real issue is, you know, when it comes to taxes... There's always pain associated with it. Part of it is the stress of knowing how to fill out the forms. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And, and tools like TurboTax help, but you still are trusting this black box to do it. Mm. But the real pain when it comes to tax time is you realize that there were a whole lot of decisions you would have done differently the year before if you had known the tax laws, if you had known the rules. Yeah. And what we pride ourselves on doing is actually having that intelligence built in the system from the get-go. I like to think that a lot of our clients are pleasantly surprised at tax time because it's only at tax time that they realize that, oh, when Wealthfront said they were saving me thousands of dollars in taxes, they weren't kidding. Like, I see that right there on my tax form. Like, my tax mm-hmm. bill is lower. You know, the brokerages, they like to pretend that taxes don't exist. 
right? You know, they're, they're very happy to tell you that if you bought Apple at 60 and you sold it at 90, that you made 50%. And they just kind of ignore the fact that at tax time, you're going to have to give a big chunk of that back, especially if it's a short-term gain. Mm. Yeah. That's what we try to automate at Wealthfront is the right type of behavior. Awesome. So, I mean, I know people can go over to Wealthfront. Let's, Andrew, do you have any other questions before we wrap up? Yeah. I, so I, I have another question and, and then a thing before you, you wrap up. But um, okay. there, there are a few robo-advisors. Um, you know, there's you guys, there's Betterment, there's some other ones, which I don't know if you'd call them robo-advisors or like Future Advisor, Wise Buy-In. Um, where do you feel that you fall along the pack? And do you think that this will eventually become like a winner-take-all space? Do you think that you guys are carving out a niche that's different than Betterment? You know, and, and I guess I kind of want to see your perspective of, of the robo-advisor industry. Yeah, um, happy to share the way that we think about it. I mean, look, I, I was on the record three years ago. I, I think the benefits of technology are so huge when it comes to investing that in the next 10 years, I think everyone will be using some form of automated investment service. Mm. Like It just generates too much value at too low a cost to not go that way. Um, you know, When I started my career, it was part of the e-commerce boom. Right? And there's this question about e-commerce. It was very obvious that 20 years from now, like everyone was going to have an e-commerce site. Right? Mm. Um, and so that's how I think automated investing is going to be. Right? I, I think we're going to see the next decade technology really take off in terms of personalization, intelligence, and automation with your money. Um, and so I think every company is going to offer something. Um, the fact that every company offers, uh, you know, every retailer out there, you'd probably think it was weird if a retailer didn't have an online e-commerce site, right? It'd be strange if you couldn't buy it online. Yeah. <laughs> um, that doesn't stop Amazon from being Amazon. And, mm. and the fact that there are all these media companies out there doesn't stop Netflix from being Netflix. Um, mm. We think Wealthfront's role in this sector is to constantly be pushing the envelope, to be the innovator in the category that keeps imagining what's possible with technology, right? So in 2012, we roll out tax loss harvesting. Three years later, everyone has to have it. You know, a year and a half ago, we roll out direct indexing. I would not be surprised if a few years from now, everyone offers it. Our role, at least our mission, is that we really think that this industry is not gonna change unless some company comes in and forces it to change. Hmm. So we're always going to be those technologists, uh, that, that dream, right, of what if you took world-class financial talent, the folks like Bert Malkiel and Charlie Ellis and Paul Fleiderer, and mashed them with the best engineers and designers in Silicon Valley, like what could we achieve, not just in one year, but over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Um, and so we're proud of being that role as the innovator. Um, you know, we've probably been fairly unique in our focus on young investors, right? You know, the truth is in this country, there's a lot more money with people over 50 mm. than under 35. I mean, it's like 15 mm. to one. Right. Um, but they probably won't move their money. They're a little more set in their ways. <laughs> you know, I'm sure some people will build businesses there. You see a mm. lot of other robo-advisors and a lot of companies building retirement features, right? You know, it'll integrate social security, right? Mm. You know, so, so when you're figuring out what you're gonna take out, um, we haven't found that to be the top concern of people under 35. Um, most of our clients are, are focused on their careers. They're focused on saving. They're focused on um, buying their first house. They're, they're wondering what happens when they get married, how to navigate compensation in their careers. Um, we're really happy building a company focused on that set of financial problems um, and just pushing the envelope on technology. And so 
Um, I think that most people, as I said earlier in this broadcast, I think most people come to Wealthfront, like I said, um, frankly, just because it's easy to get started. And because we're free under $10,000, you mm. can't beat the price. And so, I think that we've done really well with wealthy investors because of the innovation we have in features that no one else has. Um, but for whatever the reason people get started, um, I think people look at the team, they look at the mission, they look at the company, and they decide for themselves whether they want to trust their money to that business, to that team. Hmm. Um, and we try to hold ourselves to that standard. So I'm uh, dead in the middle of that like blah, blah, blah to 35 category, right? But um, my wife keeps telling me that I'm getting older. Uh, so I eventually will be out of the blah, blah, blah to 35 category. And I mean, I'm, I'm a nerd uh, with finance. And I, I kind of like to imagine what retirement might be early or how it'll play out. Do you see yourselves eventually working on tools like that? Do you have things in the works that will help people plot what the future might look like for them? Um, I, I mean, the short answer is uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I, I've written a lot about what happened the last time this country was in a big transition like this, which was in the 70s, right? Hmm. It, it turns out when the baby boomers were hitting their 20s and 30s, a lot of new brands and companies got built, right? That's when Charles Schwab launched, hmm. was 1975. Um, Vanguard launched their first index fund, December 31st, 1975. Wow. Um, these multi-trillion dollar giants that we take for granted now didn't exist 50 years ago. And it was a new generation of investors who didn't want to invest like their parents who gave birth to these brands. Now the average client at Schwab is 54. <laughs> I think the average customer at Merrill Lynch is actually 63. Wow. These are great firms and they manage trillions of dollars because they grew up with that generation, right? Our parents' mm. generation. Mm. Our goal as Wealthfront is we want to grow up with this generation, right? So as you have more needs, as you grow, um, we will keep building the features and services and products that our clients need. The difference is if you're building for the 21st century, you're not rolling out branches. You're not hiring salespeople. Instead, you're hiring great engineers and designers. You're getting PhDs in research and data scientists. Um, so we think we're building that same type of company just with a new model for a new generation. Um, so I hope that over the next 5, 10, 20 years, as our clients' needs grow, we'll grow with them, but just in an innovative way. So I, I see you guys have gotten quite a lot of funding from many seed rounds. Um, do you uh, are, do you like consider like future money to be coming from seed rounds? Are you profitable? Will you be profitable in the future? Uh, we definitely plan on being profitable in the future. Probably the right way to answer that question. No, I, I think that, um, you know, honestly, there's a reason why there hasn't been a lot of innovation in this space. Building companies in this space is not some quick big bang, right? This mm -hmm. is not like launching an app that reaches 100 million users in two days. This is managing people's money. The infrastructure, the regulatory requirements, the, talent. Um, the amount of work required is significant. I think we're going to look back. Um, and actually say that this was a rare moment in time to build a few great companies um, because there are great investors, right? You, when you look at Wealthfront's investors and you look at like, you know, a Mark Andreessen or a Reid Hoffman or a Bill Gurley, um, we are fortunate right now that there are investors who are not asking for what the return is going to be in three months. 
but asking what's the right type of business to build for the next three decades. Um, and so we have raised a lot of money um, because we actually think building a great company in this space is a long-term endeavor. And we wanted to make sure we had enough capital to focus on the long-term. Um, I think focus on the short-term is part of the reason that your debit card overdraft fee at the bank is 35 bucks, right? Like we, we want to yeah. build something different than those, those yeah. companies. Mm-hmm. Now, um, they always say like people vote with their wallets. Uh, how, many, how much assets do you guys have under management? Uh, we're, we're close to $3 billion. Um, it's been an oh, incredible wow. whirlwind. Like I said, um, it's Somebody only needs been to update a little... the Wikipedia article. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, the number keeps growing. I think more important to us, um, we added three times as many clients in January 2016 as we added in January 2015. Oh, wow. And if you think about like this January was the worst January in the markets mm. yeah. um, in years and years. And so what we're seeing is, um, you know, when I joined Wealthfront, frankly, there was an incredible amount of skepticism that anyone would trust money to an automated service. Right? Mm-hmm. None of the previous companies had gotten traction. Um, it seemed like something that just a few geeks out in Silicon Valley would do. Um, and I think three years now, I talk to the highest level of executives at banks and brokerages in the U.S. and other countries. And everyone now all of a sudden accepts this idea that automation is going to play a huge role in bringing better service at lower cost to millions of investors. And so it gets me very excited about where we're going to be three years from now. Right? So the, the growth certainly continues, but for us, the real question is, how can we make it even better? How can we generate even more value? The, the reason we launched Portfolio Review a month ago is because we still think there's a lot of things that we can do with technology to help young investors with their investment questions and problems. So I think you brought up a really good point in that January was really shitty. Um, and people are thinking that this year may continue to be shitty. Um, do you guys, what, what would your recommendations be? Invest in Wealthfront and ride it to the bottom? Uh, is there something you guys have? Uh, I don't know. Tell, tell me what you think. Well, I mean, I, I told you good investing is, is, is boring, mm. right? I mean, I think there's some truth to the fact to that, um, you know, if, if you had just invested you know, in a diversified portfolio of index funds back in 2007, right? And, and gone on a sabbatical or on a mission for, for eight or nine years, you'd really be wondering what all the fuss was about, mm. right? Like accounts would be up, um, you know, you, you would wonder about this whole up and down. I mean, as big as these economic events feel in the short term, you know, what, what's going to happen with China? What's going to happen with the EU? What's going to happen with oil? What's gonna, these issues come and go, Right. Um, now, the mistake I think a lot of investors make is actually a really simple one, which is actually you should not be investing money in the markets that you cannot afford to invest for the long term, right? So, you know, um, I know that it, it, it's sometimes painful to have an emergency fund sitting in an FDIC-insured account making almost nothing. Mm. Yeah, That money isn't there to make you money. That money is to protect your long-term investments, from unpredictable short-term needs. The way you invest for the long-term is very, very different than your needs in the short-term. But assuming that you have an emergency fund, assuming you have that protection, and you're young and you have a long time frame, honestly, like I don't think it matters what happens in January of any year. I don't think it matters what happens in any given year 
Um, if you're investing money over a 10-year time frame or longer, if you want to beat most other investors, you'll end up sticking to low-cost funds, being tax-efficient, and staying diversified. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be wealth fund. I think our system is better than any other system out there. But honestly, if you stick to those basics, you'll avoid the pitfalls that lead people to losing money. The, the problem is, is that everyone is very susceptible to that emotion of, maybe it's different this time. Maybe this is the one time the markets go down and they don't come up. Right. Maybe, maybe. I mean, it just, it's never yep. happened. It, yep. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, you can come up with exotic We have much more to worry about if that's the case than uh, our retirement. You know, it, it's funny you say that. That was, uh, that was what my grandfather always said, you know, when there were these, uh, you know, there's always these kind of uh, investment schemes of how to protect you in the next Armageddon. Mm. I, I feel like it's been updated for the zombie apocalypse, um, but it's largely the same logic. Um, but, you know, my grandfather, um, who's no longer with us, but he, he, he was very successful in business, and he always told me that, you know, if the market's really that bad, right, you, you, you've got bigger problems, right? Mm. Um, I mean, the truth is, for the last couple hundred years, it's been a pretty good bet that in the aggregate, we find new ways to create value, right? That value, part of it is captured by businesses. And you want to own a portion of those businesses over time. I think the biggest sea change in the last 50 years is it's not just one or two economies that are pulling the global economy. You actually have many, many countries that are growing and adding value, Mm -hmm. which means even more opportunity uh, for us to invest. So I I know it's exciting. And I mean, I I follow the news as much as anyone. And, you know, know, the, the kind of debate you know, what's going to happen with oil, what's going to happen with China, what's going to happen with, with Great Britain and the EU. I mean, these are all fascinating things. I don't think it's wrong for people to follow them. But this idea that you can turn generic news into some advantage in the public markets, I mean, it just leads most people to suboptimal results. I mean, the research is totally consistent. Even professionals who try to beat the market rarely do. The idea that you or I who have day jobs doing other things are going to somehow find a way to generate alpha in the public markets. I mean, I think for most of our clients, they, they don't think that that's the path to riches. Mm. They, they think the path is to be successful in their careers, right? Spend less than they make and accumulate capital over time and just keep fees low and don't do anything stupid with your taxes. I'm with you. Um, Adam, thank you for your time. That was highly educating. Uh, I am told that there were emails and you guys offered, uh, so on your website, it says there's a, a $10,000, uh, minimum and then it's like free and you guys will manage the money. And I guess, That's right. uh, for our audience, you've been really generous and you raised that to $15,000 that you'll manage for free. Um, all they have to do is if they go to listenmymatters.com slash wealthfront, uh, it'll bring them to, to the link. Uh, and yeah, I know I'm going to try it out. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, no problem. It, it was fun to be here. I'm always happy to answer questions. Um, and like you said, I think the hardest thing about getting started with good investing is, is just getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hopefully some people will do that with Wealthfront. But whether it's with Wealthfront or another provider, um, spending less than you make, making sure the emergency fund is taken care of, and then just being smart about things like fees and taxes you do that over 20, 30, 40 years. I know it sounds boring, uh, but it's amazing how it works out for people. Um, and so you really just want to put a plan in place and then execute on it. So right. happy to be here and help your listeners with that. Thank you, Adam. So if people do have questions for you or if they want to read more of your writing or connect with you, where should they go? 
Um, you can always go, uh, of course, to Wealthfront.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a great blog, right? So the, the Wealthfront blog, which is linked from the top, or you can go directly to blog.wealthfront.com, has advice not only about a wide range of financial issues, um, but also about careers and, and a lot of questions about how you build real success over time. So hopefully people will find that useful. Awesome. Well, guys, and we'll have... Oh, also, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, also, if you want to read the things that Adam wrote before Wealthfront, see his slideshow, <laughs> we're, we're going to put a, a link in the show notes to that because I thought it was really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's me great. too. Yeah. And I was going to say the, the show notes uh, will have links to everything we talk about. If you guys have questions for us, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com is our email address as always, or you can join our community of money nerds over at listenmoneymatters.com slash join. We'll have a thread about this episode up in the community for you guys to give some feedback on. So thanks for listening. Adam, thank you once again for being on the show. And we'll see you guys next week. Later, guys. Later, man. See you later. Please tell your friends about this show. (laughs) 